Well, this morning we're going to uh, we're going to continue our look at uh, the book of First Samuel, and um, we're going to be talking this morning about the great Kingmaker. And um, what we really need to do as we get started is to is remember a little bit of where we've been to understand what is happening here in chapter nine and the first part of chapter ten of First Samuel, because the setup happens in chapter eight. Um, you'll remember, um, if you think back to what went on in chapter 8, is the, the core idea there was that the people were longing for a king. They wanted a physical king. And the reason that they wanted a king was because they wanted to be like all the other nations. Everybody else had a king. And so Israel had this longing um, for a king. And you'll recall that um, they they requested this of Samuel, and, um, and it upset Samuel. It, it, it really made him not happy. And so he went to the Lord, he prayed to the Lord, he, and, uh, and, and the Lord sort of informed him, he informed Samuel of, of the people's misguided obsession with having a king. And, um, and he told Samuel what it was that he was supposed to communicate to the people. And essentially what Samuel was supposed to do is deliver the bad news that earthly kings usually are awful, okay? <laughs> that was generally the bad news. And here's how, he, here's how he was supposed to deliver that. He was supposed to tell them, look, they're going to raise your taxes. They're going to take your young sons, and they're, gonna, they're, going, to, they're, they're going to enlist them in the armed forces. Um, they're, they're going to take your property they're going to uh, they're going to you know they're going to mine your uh, your land. They're going to take all the good things for themselves because that's what kings do. And so Samuel was supposed to then take this information and he was to give it to the people and he did. And what did they say? We want a king. We don't care about all that. They did not have ears to hear. And so. Samuel delivers the news to them, and the news is earthly kings are rotten, and they create these big gargantuan um, monstrosities of government that suck up all of your life. Does this sound familiar? And, <clears throat> and they are inherently bad. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. And so the, he delivers the news, and the people look at him and say, we still want a king. And the Lord comes to Samuel and he comforts him and he tells him this. Samuel, remember, it isn't you they're rejecting. It's me. And here's how he said it. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. But they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. The important thing to to take out of chapter 8 as we move into 9 is this. God was their king. And down through the ages, as he indicates, he had shown them 
who he was, his care for them, how he would protect them, how he would, how he would watch over them. And it was clear in the way that he brought them out of Egypt, clear in the way that he stayed with them. He went with them in the wilderness. He gave them himself. He, he gave them the tabernacle, and he descended upon that in the pillar of cloud. They saw his physical representation. They saw the way in which he crushed their enemies. And yet, they always seem to want to chase after another king or another god. They wanted the physical king. They wanted a physical king because they believed that is how the Philistines, their new arch enemy, would be crushed. And that sets the stage for chapter 9. When you move into the beginning of chapter 9, you're going to, this, this will delight you. I have a one-point sermon today. Is that nice? Could be. It could be a really long point. Um, and it's the, the, so I titled the sermon, uh, the, the Great Kingmaker. And the, the first and only point is, right here, as we think about it, is I want you to see his quiet providence. So think about, we're coming out of chapter 8, the people want a king, we have this great setup, and so we move into chapter 9, and and, um, and initially what we read is that there was a Benjamite, uh, a man of standing whose name was Kish. And what we know right out of the gate is this man Kish is really kind of a nobody, okay? He's not significant, he doesn't show up anywhere else really. Um, he's kind of a he's kind of a non-figure, but the thing that stands out about him is he has a son who is head and shoulders above everyone else. Um, you've ever wondered where you get that phrase? I, you probably get it right here, right? He was head and shoulders. You know, sometimes we say that about somebody, and they're they're not literally head and shoulders above everybody else. But they stand out. They have great qualities. Okay, and Saul, this man's son, stands out, and he he stands out for a, a number of reasons. Verse two, um, he was uh, he was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than all of the others. So the author sets up this young man Saul. But there are several other things about Saul that, you be, that we begin to learn as we make our way through the chapter. The first is, Saul, as a, the son of Kish, is very much unlike the other sons that we've already been introduced to in the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel. In the first eight chapters, we, we've been reminded of the sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas. Remember them and remember what happened to them? So we have Eli, the priest, and his sons who were serving the Lord at, uh, at the tabernacle, and they were awful. They were not like their father. They did not love the Lord. They did not lead the people in righteousness. And then we learned in just the previous chapter that Samuel had the exact same situation. His sons were terrible. You know, um, I, I was telling somebody this week as I read through that, um, 
how terribly discouraging is that? And how terribly humbling is it to parent, right? Because here, clearly, in the person of Samuel, is a godly man. Um, At long last, Israel has a godly leader. And he led well, and he was faithful to the Lord. All indications are that he did it the right way. And yet his sons didn't share his passion for the Lord. That's heartbreaking. Saul comes along, and Saul is unlike those other sons. The passage tells us that he listens to his father. He follows his father's lead. He does the job that his father gives him to do. He goes and he sets out. He's he's actually at one point in the passage, he's concerned about his dad's worry. So let's just follow the story a little bit. The story, verse 3, picks up this way. There are some donkeys. Kish, who was wealthy, has some donkeys. And the donkeys go missing. And so Samuel and a servant are sent to go find the donkeys. That's the story. And it begins in... in, uh, In verse 3, now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants and you go look for the donkeys. Verse 4, so he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalatia, and they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. And then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. Verse 5. When they reached the district of Zup, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. What a tender young son, right? He's concerned about his dad. That's Saul. That is the setup to Saul. Here's one of the things we learn about Saul in this passage, though, that is a setup for later. And that is, when the servant begins to press on Saul to stay, Saul waffles. And he eventually goes along with the servant's idea of looking for the prophet, the seer, who in this case happens to be Samuel. That's the setup to the story, as we find out and we're introduced to this young man, Saul. But the story itself is really quite mundane. They're looking for donkeys. Uh, They can't find the donkeys. They walk all over the place. They can't find the donkeys. Saul says, maybe we need to go home. Um, Dad's going to be worried about us, and he'll forget about the donkeys if we're gone for too long. The servant, verse 6, comes along and says, look, uh, there's, there's a man of God in this town up here. I think we need to go. Let's go talk to him. Saul, who is a concerned young man, says, we can't go do that because I don't have anything to give him. And I'm not going to go to a prophet and not take something that I can exchange to him. Right? Here he is. Again, sensitive young man. A nice guy. We have no gift, verse 7, to take to the man of God. What do we have? 
Verse 8, the servant answers, look. Hebrew commentators talk about this, that it, it, it's almost a behold, what is this? There's silver in my hand. I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God and he'll tell us what way to take. Good, verse 10. Saul says, let's set out, let's go, let's find this man of God. And so they go up, and as they're headed up into the the town, they meet some girls coming out to draw water, and they ask them, is the prophet here, is the seer here? Are you bored yet? It's really kind of a, a yawner. So the girls come, and they say, hey, look, he's just ahead of you. If you hurry, you can get up there and find him. So that's what they do. And we learn in all of this, right? So the coming and going, the donkeys, the back and forth, and the looking, and all of this, and everything that was going on, what do we learn? Well, we learned that God was actually at work in every bit of it. And we do that because the author inserts for us Uh, The narrator gives us a a little bit of background, and it begins in 15, 15, 16, and 17. So if you're reading along and you get to verse 14, they went up from town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. If you jump to verse 18, you'll see that the story just continues. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I'm the seer, Samuel replied. It's verses 14, 15, and 16 that help us unlock the key to the passage. And here's what happens. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people for their cry has reached me. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So in all of this coming and going, right, what is the Lord doing? He's setting up the meeting between Samuel and Saul. He is doing it. The lost donkeys, God's doing Right? The fact that they couldn't find the donkeys, because imagine, they go out, they search all over the hill country of Ephraim, and they find the donkeys. Where are they going to go? They're just going to go back home. And so they're looking all over for the donkeys. They can't find the donkeys. Make this story happen. They can't find them. And so they end up needing to go and ask for information from the seer about the donkeys. And as the passage you heard read, Samuel instructs Saul. What does he tell him? Oh, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. And in all of those little details, what's going on? God is orchestrating the meeting of Samuel and Saul. God is bringing Saul to this town so that he can intersect, so his life can intersect with Samuel so that he can be crowned king. 
Does this strike you as just a little odd? That's why we call it his quiet providence, right? He's working in the small, minor details. This isn't, this isn't how we would imagine God is going to give a king to his nation, right, to his people. Wouldn't he raise him up with some great fanfare? And I mean, obviously Saul could have, he, he could have been that sort of a person. He's a strapping young man. He's got it all together. He's nice. He's winsome. He's a head and shoulders bigger than everybody else. Why didn't the Lord do it in a, with big fanfare? Instead, he just kind of weaves the details together and he makes it happen. We like big, we like gaudy, we 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 want to, you know, man, if we're going to have a king, we want him to be the king. But this is how God was working it, the quiet, mundane part of life. Proverbs 16.9 tells us, In the heart of a man he plans their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. It's rare that we get a bold declaration of what God is doing in our lives, right? Typically what happens? Typically what happens is things happen in life and we're able to kind of look back on it and and we kind of faintly see that the Lord was working those details out. I I have a couple of those in my life. One of those took place when I was exiting the Air Force as a young enlisted guy, 22 years old. So I had gone to Turkey. I was there. A guy shared the Lord with me. He was with the navigators. He's on his last tour in the Air Force. And he shared the Lord with me in a laundry room in Turkey, and I came to faith. And so this guy discipled me, Dave Nickerson. And he took me through scripture memory and I began to learn my Bible and he read it with me and he he taught me how to apply its principles to my life. I mean, we just did real discipleship for about 18 months. When I left Turkey, I moved back to my parents' house for about four or five months and I started college. I got back on December 28th of 1990. And I started the new semester right there at the beginning of January. And uh, I, so I had been to uh, um, a, a week's worth of classes. And I get a phone call from a young lady. This is pre-cell phone, okay? So I actually had to be at home. And the phone rang. And, and I answered it at my mom and dad's house. And it was a young lady whose name was Julie Pewitz. I didn't know Julie. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know who she was. But she put the pieces together. And Julie tells me, hey, I'm Julie Pewitz. You don't know me. But while you were living in Turkey with Dave Nickerson, I was living in Pensacola, Florida, and then Niceville, Florida, with Dave's wife, Bev. And so while Dave was discipling you in Turkey, Bev was discipling me in Niceville. And oh, by the way, I'm back home now, and I live in such and such and such and such, which I think is just right around the corner from you. 
and it was. Julie Peewitz lived the next street over, three houses down. I could throw a baseball back then and hit her house. And she had gone all the way to Pensacola, Florida to, to study and had met Bev, and she discipled her. And I had gone all the way to Turkey and met Dave, and he had discipled me. And then I went home, and she went home, and she was calling to invite me to come to a skating party that her church college group was having. And so I went to the party, and at the party, I met a guy who was in my history class and just happened to turn out. We recognized each other, and we started a conversation, and we became best friends and went off to seminary together. That's one of those things, right, where I look back on it and I go, what are the odds? What are the chances? Right? I was a terribly vulnerable moment in my life. I had left the guy that was discipling me for 18 months. I moved back home. I was starting college. I could have gone a number of different directions. I didn't have that daily interaction with Dave Nickerson pounding me with Scripture memory right then. But the Lord provided for me a connection. And I look back on that, and I go, you know, those are, those, are, those are the fingerprints of God in my mind that he kept me at that moment. And he provided for me the friendship that I needed. I know you you look back in your life, there are probably some of those moments that you've had as well. Moments where you can see God was orchestrating what you couldn't have orchestrated. Doing for you and in your life what you couldn't have done. To keep you safe, free from harm, out of danger perhaps in the right church, some circumstance. And that's what the Lord is doing here in Saul's life as he brings Saul and Samuel into contact. God's providential hand. Usually, we're only able to see it from a distance. So what do you do if you can't see it in the midst of that? Where do you go? Well, here's what you do. You keep looking for the donkey. You keep searching. You keep doing the next thing in front of you, right? As God orchestrates your path, as he keeps things together. And that's what Saul does until the Lord makes it absolutely clear, here is what is happening in your life. Proverbs twenty twenty four says, A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? See, when when God's at work, when he's doing all of that, you don't know it until you're able to look back at it. Here's the second thing I want you to see in the passage. This is still part of the first point. Here's the second thing I want you to see in the passage, and it's this. In the middle of all of this, in the middle of the passage, in the same little section that holds the key about the providence of God, we also see the love of God for wayward sinners. Look at how, look at how our, our narrator tells us. I'll send you a man, verse 16, from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. And then, and then there's this little sentence. I have looked upon my people for their what? cry has reached me. 
That's why I gave you the setup in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8 was the indication that this is a great thing, that the people were longing for an earthly king? Or was God kind of saying, you know, here they go again? He was saying, here they go again. Here they go chasing after an earthly king. Here they go chasing after other gods. And, you know, it's at that moment you, you, you would think at this point, especially if you kind of just go back a few years and you look at the history of the judges that has already, already gone on, right, where the people went through the cycle of, you know, crying out to God and he gives them a ruler and then they reject the ruler and they do whatever they want, whatever's right in their own eyes, and then they get in a great big mess and they cry out to God and the cycle just repeats itself. And so here are the people. That's, that's kind of the tease in chapter 8. Here they are doing exactly what they want to do again. Going after an earthly king. They've got me, God says, and they want him. They want to put their hope in the earthly guy, not in me. And so, he gives them a king, but he's gracious in giving them a king. He has pity on them as he gives them a king. And that's why he says to them, I have, look, when, it, when the passage says the Lord has looked upon you, when he, when he has set his face upon you, that is always a good thing. It's a positive thing. That's why the blessing is the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his what? face to shine upon you. And so the passage tells us that there they were, they're in a mess, they're looking, they're chasing, they're going, they're wandering after an earthly king, and and God says, I have shown my face to them, and I have heard their cry, it's reached me, and I am going to give them Saul. Now we're going to learn we're going to learn, and you already know probably, that Saul's a good guy now. But there's none of us, none of us can hold it together forever. And Saul just can't hold it together forever because he's an earthly king. And earthly kings, earthly kings will always disappoint. Earthly kings and presidents and prime ministers will always disappoint you. And Israel will be disappointed. But before they're disappointed, before their heart gets too wrapped up, God gives them a good name. He heard their cry, he showed his face to them, and he gave them, at this point, what they don't really deserve. And isn't that the case for us? He heard our cry, he knew our plight, and he gave us 
at the point of our greatest need exactly what we didn't deserve. A heavenly king, a king that would love us, a king that would come down and live perfectly and and give his life for us as a ransom to pay the penalty for us, to secure our righteousness. That's why in the Bible when Paul says, while we were yet sinners, you see that? Christ what? Died for us. While we were at the point of our greatest need, while we're the... In, in, you know, the moment of greatest hypocrisy in our lives while we're chasing earthly kings, He's sending the heavenly king to ransom us. Because He's a good God. Because He's a loving God. Because He's a pursuing God. Because He is a God who will not let you go. And then all along the way through your journey, He provides for you. This morning, 